Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. What's going on, everybody? This is Evolutionary Hard. Core number one zero five. Steve Smee here, and the Mwapsa is back in the house. What's up, man? We're ready to rock and roll, cowboy. So, guys, our series continues. These are really good. We're doing these because these are the guys from that have shaped bodybuilding and have shaped the marketing behind bodybuilding over the years. So, this one we're gonna do Lou. Ferrigno, is that the correct, uh, pron- <laughs> the correct pronunciation, Mobster? I, I think it is. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's pretty pronounced. Maybe not his mum and his dad, but everybody else does, yeah. So, listen, guys. Lou was a big, 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 big guy back in the day. And Lou, it's a shame if it wasn't for Arnold, Lou would have won back in the 1970s. He actually finished second to Arnold back in 1974, and he finished third in 1975. So he came really close to winning, but he was still able to parlay that into a TV career. And the number one show that he did, Mobster, this was back in your day, Mm. that was The Hulk. It was a uh, show that lasted, what, three, four years um, called The Incredible Hulk, and he was The Hulk. And uh, he – you know, that was a successful show. Any show that lasts longer than a year or two is considered a successful show. And he did very well on that. He also did some movies. The first movie he was in, which was the same, uh, which was the year before he, he got the in- Incredible Hulk gig, was a movie called Pumping Iron, which was a docudrama uh, featuring him and Arnold. And if you guys have ever seen that movie, um, that came out in the late 70s, but... Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of these docudramas, but that one was a really good one. If you like bodybuilding, if you like weight training, that was a really good one. And that featured how Arnold basically, you know, um, his training, the supplementation, all the work he put in. And it was, it was a kind of a cool behind the scenes look of what it's like to become a professional bodybuilder at the highest level. So I highly recommend you guys check that one called Pumping Iron. You can probably go on YouTube and watch it for free, right, Mobster? I don't think you have to pay to watch it. It's all over. Uh, yeah, yeah I've, I've, you can watch it on YouTube. I've just watched, uh, as research for this uh, episode, a documentary called uh, Stand Tall, which was uh, for the uh, Masters Mr. Olympia. And I'm not sure if it's on YouTube, but it might be worth a watch, if only for Lou Ferrigno's physique, was when he starred in a film called Hercules, uh, following on from... Uh, Reg Park and Steve Reeves. Lou probably looked like Hercules, uh, complete with beard. But I'm, I'm sure in the style of most of those movies, the script writing and perhaps the story was rubbish. But Lou certainly looked like a Herculean physique up on the screen. So that might be probably on YouTube worth searching out for. I doubt even if it even made it to DVD. So yeah, there you go, guys. So Lou Ferrigno, um, just like the name, obviously he's Italian. If it ends with a vowel, it's usually Italian, right? An O or an I. He's from Brooklyn, New York. Big, big Italian community. His father was a lieutenant. Um, he basically had some ear infections when he was really, really young. And he says that he lost up to 80% of his hearing. So technically, he was deaf. Um, his condition was not diagnosed till he was three years old. He had a lot of bullying during his childhood, um, they used to tease him. They used to call him Deaf Louie, Deaf Mute. And that obviously is hard when you have a hard time hearing. It's hard for you to socialize. So you can kind of tell, even when you watch them, the movie Pumping Iron, he has a little social awkwardness to him. But he was able, instead of using that as a negative, he was able to use that as a positive. And he turned that into a positive, started weight training at the age of 13. He had a gift. Um, he credits Steve Reeves for helping him get into bodybuilding. He couldn't afford to buy weights. So he would, he would start lifting weights with broomsticks, pails, cement, stuff like that. 
And, um, you know, he always dreamed of being in Hercules himself because he was a big fan of Steve Reese and he would go on to do that. So if you set your mind to something, you dream about something, it's amazing how you can kind of get that happen. I, I'd also suggest, and if it, what you just said is, is 100% true, and he says as much as himself, but there's a huge part and perhaps a driving force for a, a great many of our uh, listeners and viewers with the, really, the back and forth between him and his father, because there's a stuff in Pumping Iron, which we know, as you say, was a docudrama, so some of what we saw on screen was uh, for dramatic effect. There's stuff that's came many years later in, in the documentaries, in stories and so on, that the, uh, a lot of the driving force alongside the bullying at school and, and as a response to his deafness was his relationship with his father. So I think there's one story where his dad talking about taking his weights away if he didn't do this or he did better at school because he was going to be held back a year. So he did everything he possibly could. And you can argue that that was, becomes a driving force later on. In fact, even in the documentary, uh, Stan told there's, there's a whole thing with his uh, second wife when she says about Louis constantly wanting to be fulfilled for winning certain titles. And she said she doesn't, he doesn't realise that he's already fulfilled. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of motivation and drive that's come from those formative years and the relationship with his father was part of that time as well. Yeah, back to you, Steve. What I think is interesting about Lou was that his size. Um, there's some, I don't know, because you met him in person, right, Mobster? Yeah, I, I, I was going to tell this story now. Yeah. So how I, tall is he, first of all? Because how tall are you compared to him? Because some people I, think he's like 6'2", some people think he's 6'5". You, yeah, you met I, him in person, yeah. Definitely six five. Definitely tall. I'm six foot three, uh, one point nine meters in in, in, in metric, and uh, I can't, I'm trying to think. I was probably around two thirty, two forty pounds. Lou at that time was making his uh, comeback to the Olympia stage, which uh, Steve and I discussed is 1992, when it was uh, reported as being somewhere between 315 and 320 pounds on stage people that is a seriously big man because you're talking about competition condition i uh, the seminar i believe we were told he was 320 pounds and he was very close to what we saw on stage so yeah a seriously big man and my my particular there's a couple of memories that come out of that but to, just to give you an idea of his size because of the grip stuff that i do and the train for and so on one of the things that fascinates the grip guys is your hand size I believe mine's uh, from, from the first crease of the wrist to the tip of my middle finger, about eight and a quarter inches. I shook Louis's hand on the stage when you're going up there to buy a photograph and, you know, shake the pro's hand and whatever, as you do with these kind of things. And it felt like I was putting my hand into a bucket. His hands, I'm going to be crude, were fucking monumental. Now, that's genetic. That's, that's a lot of growth hormone, uh, naturally or otherwise, when he was younger. It was seriously, I've got big hands, but my hands were just fell inside his giant paw. He was wrapping his hand around my hands, and my hands are pretty big, honestly. So, yeah, it was a seriously big physical specimen. And we're talking about uh, 45 pounds bigger than when he appeared in the Pumping Iron movie, which I, I think was uh, 275 pounds. Now, there are some big bodybuilders out there now, but he was ahead of his time for sheer size and certainly for that kind of size on stage, both in 75 and back later on in 1992. A really, really big physical and lean. We're not talking about strongman size. We're talking about muscular, in shape, with veins, with a tan on and looking pretty damn good. So, yeah, that, it's, you can't help but to be impressed by his physical size. You can argue about his shape and his aesthetics, but his overall impression is, oh my God, this guy is pretty fucking big. So, yeah. Well, that's why he was able to parlay his, um, his size into doing these roles. And he, he did several roles, Mobster. He was in um, all kinds of shows and, and movies. Um, he was in... From basically the, the 80s, throughout the 80s, he did a bunch of movies, uh, small roles, nothing nothing too, too crazy. And even all the way up until 2017, he played a voice in the, the movie Thor. So even his voice is, um, you know, he's able to monetize even that. So a lot of shows, a lot of cameos and shows. 
he was in even like stuff like Reno 911. He was in stuff like Star Trek Continues. He was in, you know, all kinds of stuff, even Night Corps back in the mid 80s. I remember that show when I was a kid. Um, you know, so he was in a, in a lot of stuff. So as Monster mentioned, you know, he was big in the mid 70s. And then he parlayed that into a, a television career. But then he came back. I guess the thirst was there. Maybe you can get into why you think he came back. In 92, he came back to the Mr. Olympia, got 12th. In 93, he came back and he got 10th, which was an improvement. That was, that's pretty amazing uh, to come back and then come back again and get even a higher rank. And then in 94, he got second in the Olympic Masters division. And then he, and then he called it quits. So I don't know if you want to touch on that, Mobster. Do you have any idea why he had that thirst to come back after basically 20 years away from, from uh, high levels of competition? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of two, two things. I can actually think that the second part, which you just touched upon, is when he finally decides to retire. One could argue that he's, he's finally uh, matured mentally to the point where he doesn't have anything to prove and as, as we said he must have made some millions of dollars he's appeared on multiple tv programs multiple movies he's, he's, he's on stage and he's pretty much a legend you know the second or third best known bodybuilder of all time finally maybe when you get to 45 50 years of age you go do you know what i have nothing to prove but before that and i can kind of understand this myself as a guy that's you know past 50 years of age I would have said that my physical strength, my greatest power, so to speak, on, in, in terms of lifting or whatever else, would have been the late 30s and early 40s. So you go, do you know, do, do you still have something to prove then? There's all the stuff that we've talked about with regards to his background. Is it still there when he's in his, when he's in his uh, you know, late 30s, early 40s, which is about the time that we're talking about? I'm going to say, yeah. So not only that, if he was 275 pounds in 1975, and he finds himself playing the Incredible Hulk at 280, 290. And he's doing seminars at 290 pounds. And maybe slowly but surely he's creeping up to 300 pounds. Maybe he actually realizes, you know what? I'm pretty damn good. And uh, maybe it's about time I step back on stage. He was training at Goals. He was training at World's Gym. I I'm going to say that he's going to be close to 300 pounds, 290 pounds, 300 pounds. And suddenly he starts to think, you know what? I'm probably actually approaching my physical peak. I, I, I wasn't quite there in 75 and maybe I damn well need to get on stage. I don't think he needed to be relevant. He was just about as relevant as it's possible to be. So yeah, I can understand that uh, in, in terms of my own lifting career or whatever else. I very, I, I, you know, driven to compete, then started winning. You go away, you come back. Uh, I'm 56. So last two years ago, I think it was the last time I competed and I don't think I was as driven. I don't think I was as hungry, uh, and that showed in the results. I was perfectly fine, got a world record on the second event, did perfectly fine on the first event, and then kind of dropped off, off, off the radar after that. And I can see that if my mentality is anything to go by as a measure, as, a, as an older athlete, then Louis and other older athletes are going to be in that place, 40 years of age driven, 45 years of age driven, 50, I've got grandkids, it's going to have, you know, grown-up children that appeared in, in, in videos and stuff that he's done for training. No longer anything to prove. So I can see the way that we go through this part of our lives and, and what drives us when we're younger, middle-aged, when we're married, when we've got kids. It changes. And maybe maybe in that terms of athletic drive, it's changed. And, and that's where that's going to come from. We're all on a journey, people. And uh, sometimes it takes us longer to arrive at certain destinations. So, yeah, no longer having anything to prove. 56 years of age. Maybe that's what happened with Louis. And I, I can only think of it in those kind of terms. You've got to remember, when he was uh, doing the stuff with uh, Arnold in, in Pumpkin Iron, I believe he was in his uh, mid-20s. So, yeah, the way we think then, compared to how we are when we're 50, 55, 56 years of age, completely different. And, and unless you've done that and experienced it, it's hard for people to understand. You can't write that stuff down. It has to come from experience. So, yeah, I think that's what's happened there, Steve. Yeah, curiosity and, you know, hey, let's see what I can do. And second wave, you know, the second wave action. Uh, it's actually arguable. I think he looked better as, as an older athlete. If you compare even the, the photographs and the video from Pumping Iron physically, I mean, the cinematography, the cameras would have improved. But he actually, I think he looked better as an older athlete, certainly 40 years of age, leaner, 
there's some argument about how well his calves improved, and I'm winking at Steve to demonstrate that perhaps there was something suspect there. But leaner, look better lines, better shape, probably better knew himself in terms of his physical uh, training and so on and so forth. Uh, and who knows, which we'll get into in a minute, maybe better drugs too. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, I think that was part of the reason too. So let's get into that. I think he, he was like, wow, you know, look at the stuff out there today. I want to get in on this. So back then, let's, let's start in the mid-70s, Mom. So let's talk about the fun stuff. Let's talk about what he, we think he used back in the 70s. So, you know, it wasn't a big secret, guys, what guys had access to in those days. D-Bowl, Deca, Primo Bowling. Those were, those were the three that they used. They did not use testosterone very much, if at all. Because back then, they didn't have any way to block estrogen. So if you use testosterone, you were going to get gynecomastia. You were going to get bloated. They would laugh at you if you went on stage and you had testosterone in your body without an anti-estrogen. They'd laugh at you. This was before the, you know, this stuff even existed. Novadex was around, but no one knew to use it yet. They didn't start understanding about Novadex till the mid to late 80s. So, you know, we could speculate, what did he use? You know, a D-Bowl. Um, he probably used a grabbed bunch of D-Bowl, ran that, maybe 30, 40, 50 milligrams a day of that, just a handful of it a day. DECA, 800 milligrams a week, went high on the DECA. It aromatizes only a, a fourth or a fifth as much as testosterone. So you can get away with blasting a bunch of DECA and uh, get results on it without bloating up, right? Um, the people who blow it up on DECA, they stack a lot of tests with it. That's why they blow it up. But if you run DECA by itself with Primo, you're not going to blow it up like that. So, you know, a lot of DECA and a lot of Primo, probably 600, 700, 800 milligrams of Primo even. Back, back in those days, Arnold ran about 700 milligrams of Primo, 100 milligrams a day. So he probably ran about the same amount. So he didn't have as good as genetics as, as Arnold. But he had pretty damn good genetics. I mean, the guy, if he was around um, in the 90s and he was that young, as uh, young as he was, and in the 2000s, he would have been, you know, something, something to mess with. So that's what we think he used back in the 70s. Mobster, have anything to add to that before we talk I'm about it? Yeah. In terms of the actual steroid use, yeah, 100%. Uh, I think one of the arguments, I think Arnold actually touches upon this when he's commenting on Louis, is I think that the Louis didn't quite understand what he had. Uh, I, I'd imagine with Louis and the guys that he was hanging around at the time, though they shared some friends, he wouldn't necessarily had access to the same kind of information. This is the advantage that Arnold has, and we discussed this in a previous episode, people. Arnold was savvy, and I think he actually says something to the effect of that Louis wasn't as savvy as what I was. Certainly not back in those days. So you can imagine, this, this guy's a physical specimen, and Arnold was driven to win, probably more than Louis was. So he would have done everything, and I, we touched on this before, everything, to win that means knowledge that means access to steroids that means the best doctors and here's a fact i think louis didn't quite think in those terms in 75 or around the 70s later on in the 80s he probably just with the tv and the beginning of the internet you're going to get people getting in touch with you you're going to get people contacting you 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 and here's the truth people sometimes when you're a top professional bodybuilder people will offer you steroids so the arnold we know went and saw a doctor had a prescription quite legally. He would have had that sex into the invasion. The guys he was hanging around with, there was sharing information. You've got to remember, he wasn't hanging around with Louis. He knew Louis was. Arnold was the kind of guy that knew all about Louis and got into the mindset. So when he says savvy, I, I think that's correct. I don't think that Louis made himself as well informed. He wouldn't have had the same kind of access to information and stories. He would have had the, the East Coast, West Coast business with the rumors and the, some information back and forth. But I think Arnold made a point of being better informed, better access to, to steroids. And so, you know, those kind of nuances, that's what you're looking for. You want to be the pro. You want to beat everybody else. You want to be better informed, better access, better looked after by doctors. That's, that's, that's just, you know, the best equipment, the best training facilities. Again, slightly played out in a, in, in a pumping iron movie that Louis was on, you know, one side of America and Arnold was on the other side. That wasn't completely true. Uh, Louis was, I mean, in Stantel, he talks about uh, Joe Weider asking him to come over to the West Coast. 
sleeping on a beach, having the salt money out, uh, Joe getting him into the seminars, posing exhibitions to get the cash to do things, to pay for, he says literally just to pay for food. So again, you know, I, Arnold come over, Arnold was on a, a kind of contract, uh, had a place to live, uh, Louis on the beach. You know, this is a kind of difference. He's always two, three steps behind with all these kind of uh, aspects that you need to be tip top. Yet physically, probably genetically, and I believe Arnold says something to the effect of, I had Louis's uh, attrib physical attributes, his genetics. Oh my God, what kind of bodybuilder could I be? So yeah, you, there you go, Steve. So I want to get definitely into training, Monster. I want you to definitely talk about the training in a minute. But let's talk about what guys today would use versus what he used. So, you know, we could get, we could make the educated guess. Debo, Deca, Primo in those days was the big thing. Um, nowadays, what are guys using? They're not using, instead of the Debo, they might use something like Anadrol if they wanted something similar to Debo because the Anadrol is actually a DHT derivative. So it gives you more hardening. It doesn't aromatize it to estrogen, although it will attach to estrogen receptors, but you can basically offset that. So that would be maybe instead of Debo, Anadrol, but more likely they would go with Winstrol. Winstrol is a dryer. It will dry you out. Instead of the DECA, they're going to run some tests, and then they're going to cut the test off closer to competition. They don't want any of that in their system. And instead of something like a long ester like, like DECA was back in those days, where you, know, you had to stop using it, it would take six, seven weeks to be out of your system. You know, Even three, four weeks after you stop taking it, it's in your system at high levels. So nowadays, what they're doing, Monster, short esters, a lot of short esters because they want the flexibility. So they use testosterone propanate, which is a shorter ester, and that gives them the flexibility to stop using it three, four weeks out from competition. And then this way, they're nice and dry when they actually go on stage. Instead of Primo, Primo, okay, very expensive, and they have to run a lot of it. Instead of the Primo, they, they use a lot of Trend. Today, is, it's Trenbolone. Trenbolone is the beast. It's the king of all steroids. It's the nectar of the gods. So nowadays, a um, lot, lot, of, lot of Trend, a lot of tests, a lot of androgens, Anadrol, Winstrol to dry them out, and then the Masteron. You can throw in the Masteron, which is a cosmetic hardener, and that's something that they also use a lot of today, definitely. One of the things I was going to say, I had one, the photograph that I brought at that seminar, and this is, and I hinted at these, these suspicious calves. Is it Escaline, the one that they used to inject into the muscles to get the mild inflammatory response so that the muscles would swell up just before they went on stage? And, and, and the photograph I had, unfortunately no longer have, is a photograph of him tamed in some sort of gardens, some kind of rocky backdrop or wherever else, and he's flexing a sunakala sort of relaxed pose, and his calves look especially uh, improved in a way that perhaps uh, they don't look quite now, and they certainly didn't look before. So one, one suspects there was that. And also, and I think we've touched on it already, the, the, anti, the, the aromatized inhibitors, uh, the, 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 the lower of the, lowering of the estrogen levels to remove that slight bloat that certain drugs will give you. And so, he was leaner, as I said earlier on, and that suggests to me AI is coming into use. Uh, growth hormone, I think, uh, not, not just naturally, because he was six foot five and he had that huge frame, so certainly he was taller than his father, taller than his mother. I don't think there was anybody else in his family that tall, so there's certainly some sort of uh, growth hormone, natural release. He was bordering on, on a little bit too much uh, early years. And, but possibly putting growth hormone back into the mix to lean him out in combination with the steroids on the diet, of course. Uh, and to give him, I mean, like I said, again, from 75 to 75 pounds on stage to 1992, 320 pounds on stage, there's a lot more going on there than changing up, changing up steroids or whatever else. One could also argue possibly that the, the amounts increased because that would have been encouraged both between the, 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 three four decades that we're talking about here so perhaps it was lower dosages uh, in 75 and higher dosages with certainly trend i was going to say 100 percent trend winstrol for the drying out which has already been mentioned growth hormone if he wasn't taking it before he was certainly taking it in my opinion in 1992 and definitely the use of aerobicized inhibitors at that time to to lower estrogen and uh, to lean out 
so that he's not carrying that film of water. If you look at some of the bodybuilders then, they would have muscle separation, but they have just the sheen uh, of water, especially in the on-stage photographs versus the studio shots. A studio shots are shot under hot lights, so again, they will dry you out. So there's lots, of, and maybe just the tricks. Again, if he wasn't the savvy, the tricks, as, as Steve said, the short arresters, not the long ones, not running the, the, the stuff the whole time, taking stuff out at the right time to get dry on stage. Uh, in Stan Tull, he's working with Aru, worked with um, uh, Lee Priest. So you're going to have guys behind him that want to see him, that were fans for 20 years, that are going to want to see him on stage. So they're going to be, to use Arnold's turn of phrase, giving him the advices and uh, say, come on, Louis, this is what you need to be doing to get into shape. So yeah, definitely those things there, Steve. Back to you. Yeah, definitely. And with a lot of HGH also comes a lot of insulin. Insulin is something that's used today in the pro level bodybuilding. And then DMP in the 90s, um, a lot of guys started using DMP that came around. And I would say that they're still using it today for their bodybuilding. So besides the steroids that we mentioned, the HGH along with the insulin manipulation where your nutrition partitioning, he's a big guy. He's got a lot of big frame so there's a lot of um muscle there that can be uh, fueled and that's what they use a lot of hgh we're talking 10 15 ius on some days and along with a lot of insulin you use all that hgh you need that insulin as well to help drop down your blood sugar and, and help you partition all that food that you're eating so let's get into um let's get into the training monster back then what do you think Lou did back in the 70s what do you think changed in the 90s and with him and then what do you think guys are doing today with training so it's a three-step question so this is an interesting one we're doing we're going to do 70s workout early 90s mid 90s workout with Lou and then what the guys do today and then what what has changed in those three steps you think Right, in terms of access to equipment, uh, and, and again, I'll use 1975 as a reference point. Very basic, very, very basic. So guys, if you go to the late 70s, even to 1970, just thereabouts, they, the incline bench was sometimes literally a padded piece of wood leaning affixed against the wall. There wasn't an actual seat that you sat on. So we're not talking about, I mean, the Nautilus machines were around there, but not many gyms had them. So very, very basic. He was described, I actually think it was an exaggeration, as uh, at one posing uh, exhibition as the strongest bodybuilder in the world. I don't think that was true. Sometimes with the really big, tall bodybuilders, the kind of rangy guys that are trying to fill out their muscle, you think, oh my God, he must be fantastically strong. I don't think Louis was, uh, you know, perfectly fine. But the, I believe we're talking about some of the fake plate type stuff of photography and whatever else. So he was a strong bodybuilder, but certainly not the strongest. Equipment access would have been basic compared to now. In terms of uh, 82, now we're talking because 82 is, again, I use Stan Tall as the reference point here. He was training at World's Gym. And we're talking about the World's Gym that Joe Gold started after he sold Gold's Gym, went and did another sailing around the world thing because that's that was part of his background being a sailor be, being in charge of a boat coming back realizing he couldn't help open another gold gym because he essentially he contracted that being able to uh, use the name so he set up the world's gym uh, in venice beach famous like church like atmosphere again with the the joe gold hand-built equipment but we have a 20-year difference here with, with uh, in terms of design quality, materials available, the, the bearings and so on and so forth, access to equipment. You had the, one of the things that was very, very nice at World's Gym was he had an outdoor lifting area. And uh, you got some shots from Stantle and photography where Louis is training both indoors and outdoors on very nice looking, well-made equipment. In terms of the actual training, I'm going to say again, this is access to information. We started, the, I've got magazines that go back to them, books, uh, DVDs and videos, or videos especially th at that time that started to come out. So you're getting access to information that you hadn't got. You didn't have to travel around the world to go and see this. It was starting to become available to you. Nautilus machines would have started to have crept into more gyms. Universal was, uh, was, was around that kind of time, late 80s, in terms of the more modern equipment. So yeah, definitely an access. I think in terms of uh, a more varied training approach for him then, 
And of course, what we're talking about at that point is 20 plus years of experience, knowing your body, knowing what, what can reduce. So for example, uh, it's hard to say 100%, but I'm pretty sure we're talking about a solo or perhaps a single training partner in, in the 70s versus him training with multiple training partners, more access to physio, chiro, this kind of stuff. And so the rehab was improved. Uh, ice baths were starting to make their way in at that time. Better access to uh, more nutritious bodybuilding. I mean, guys, the difference between protein powders in 1970, 75 to 1992 is a world. They've got stuff that used to uh, fish. I think one was protein from the sea that Hoffman used to produce in the 70s versus actual proper protein powders and actual better supplements in the 90s which of course i i'm i'm talking about myself starting in 1980 and it's a world of difference in terms of access to that stuff now versus now that's a whole new ball game there are bodybuilders now that would go to multiple gyms literally i would go to one gym for legs another gym for chest another gym for back just because the equipment is so good for legs for back for chest and so, and also what we're talking about, touching on back on, on the pharmaceutical and supplement side is the ability to, for example, preptize certain drugs uses pre-workouts and so on and so forth. So if you were seriously, seriously hardcore, unless you've got a great deal of money, you can have all this equipment in one place, out of your own pocket, you're going to travel around. I know from, from again, from experience, both myself from traveling and, and, and training in different places when I've had the opportunity, but specifically professional bodybuilders won't actually always train in one gym. They'll go to one gym for cardio. They'll go to another gym because they like training back. And unless they own the gym and can afford to put the equipment in there, that's how they get their stuff done. So, you know, as good as it would have been in 92 for him to train at World's Gym, I could see him or a bodybuilder now going to multiple places to train. Uh, in terms of the volume, I don't think necessarily that that needs to differ. The, the body hasn't changed. It won't change in 10,000 years. It's certainly not going to change in 20 years. But in terms of how we train it, access to equipment is probably the greater thing. So, for example, uh, multiple different angles that can be trained if you've got the right access. I mean, just as an example where we are, You've got the, the local gym by me, and then there's a place which is about uh, 15 to 20 miles away where the owners are fantastic coaches, and they had, they just, just changed gyms, a really good varied range of equipment that was getting some professional athletes, uh, bodybuilders and rugby players to go to that particular place. So not only did you have tip-top instruction, you'd have better access to equipment with great angles, that were, the hand-built, uh, by an engineer that I know and so this is the kind of stuff that we're getting into I could see that Louis if he was a uh, 2020 bodybuilder would be using multiple gyms to get the best access to the right equipment all the different angles to bring out all those nuances to, to develop the muscle to it that's absolute maximum that's without getting into the peptides that's without getting into pre-workouts that's without getting into as they said nutrient partitioning you know the post-workout stuff the eat what to take in the morning what to take in the evening the, the way that we are i would think actually now in terms of nutrition we're way more into the whole uh, food prep and weighing up a certain foods uh, being aware of certain foods causing certain effects on our bodies allergic responses all these kind of things and um, uh, there are junior novice bodybuilders that have access to information that professionals in the 70s and even in the 90s won't have access have had access to research chemicals that we have access to literally from the bodybuilder magazines in the uk that i can look up versus what would have been available in 92 and in 75 and the information that we have in terms of coaching in terms of um how to get the best out of each muscle is a world ahead of where it used to be in 92 and, 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 and it's a galaxy across in terms of distance of what would have been invaluable 75. Just literally the physical response that muscles have to stimuli and knowledge now is so much greater. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, I think with him, I think if he had the ability um, – I think that's probably one of the reasons he came back in the, in the early to mid nineties, he realized he's like, wow, I really didn't know shit back in the seventies. Um, so that's one of the reasons he wanted to come back just to see what he was capable of doing. And 
And, uh, you know, you could argue he, he proved himself. I mean, he got top 10, top 12, and then second in the Masters. So, you know, he uh, is no telling what he had done. But I think everybody feels the same way. Arnold was way, you know, ahead of his time back in the 70s. But even him, if he knew what he knows now, I mean, you know, he would have been completely different back then too. So it's it really is amazing. I think that over time, though, one of the things, the consistent things have been volume. I think the guys understood volume. I think they understood about uh, – going lifting heavy um building a strong base you know starting with powerlifting from a young age i think when he was 12 13 he definitely was doing the compound lifting lifting heavy building that and then going from there and in terms of his bodybuilding career 10 years later yeah this is why i was gonna i was gonna touch on something today effects i'm a great one and anybody that reads my post on the forums will know this is the case i'm very much a, a, a guy that says about basics brief brutal put lots of weight on the bar and sort those kind of things out before you start getting to the crazy stuff we sometimes see on the forums guys asking about things that we really think is fine for us to pass on the information to but guys Sometimes you're asking questions, you're kind of getting ahead of yourself. If you're not getting under the bar and, to use the phrase, doing the grind, and we're talking about a 275-pound bodybuilder in 1975, guys. That is still a big man now, six foot five or not. It's a big man now. So the basics, barbells, dumbbells, incline bench, whatever, just, I mean, he had a 60-inch chest, people. So the basics and what he, the limited access that he had then to supplements and training equipment and everything else and still built that physique. There's a great many forum members and listeners to this podcast that would be perfectly happy. And then you add in the advances of information. Then you add the access, ability, the knowledge. Literally, we can talk about mitochondria and how uh, muscle function and all this kind of stuff that we didn't have access to then. And then you throw in the peptides and research chemicals and you get a more and more and more advanced. I mean, it's almost like we want to get into a time machine and take the 1975 Louis and bring him up into 2020 and say, listen, Louis, this is what's available to you now. You're 25 years of age. I think we're going to create a 350-pound monster on stage. If nothing else, I don't know what would happen to his aesthetics at 350. But my God, the information that's available now versus then, I think that this is the thing. Don't take away too much from this. Get those basics, get the volume, pump that muscle, feed it, rest. And they had that then. And look at the physiques that they were turning out. And then you add the stuff that was available in 92, supplemental nutrition going up and up and up. And then you get to 2020. As I said just now, the, the access that we have, the information that we have, the, the ability to get hold of I mean, Christ almighty, we can get some of these things in five days. That would have taken months. In those days, they were literally being, in 92, we're talking about stuff that was literally just being researched. We call them research chemicals now, but they were actually researching in, in those days. Some of the stuff that we use now wasn't, hasn't, literally hadn't been developed until the year 2000 or there or thereabouts. I think 2001, 2002, some of these chemicals were still in the lab being tested. And, and, and so the, the, what's happened in the last 20 years is just crazy. And to take, does it get those basic spots on and then add in the stuff that we're going to, we have access to information that we can provide for you guys through the forums, through our articles. It's mind blowing really the physics. And I think Steve and I have talked about this before. What's going to happen in the next five or 10 years, this kind of stuff seems to be speeding up and our ability to get hold of this information and pass it on to you people is, is, is getting quicker and quicker and quicker. I mean, literally if a chemical or product comes out tomorrow, We'll have information on that by the end of the week and we'll start to get into the how it can be used probably within a fortnight. And then we'll have someone out there that's turned himself into a guinea pig and, and already using it. And it's, that's how speeded up this kind of stuff is. If a new training uh, aspect comes, comes online, we can have access to it. We, 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 got, you, we can Google YouTube motivational videos every single day of the week to fire us up. So the, the, it's just mind-blowing how things are that much more developed, that much more accessible, and so, so quick at getting the information out. They would have been waiting for phone calls and, and emails and uh, 
God, God help us, telegrams to get some of this information. They would have had to wait for a guy to come from the West Coast, travel back to the East Coast, and then sit down. And if you were lucky, share that kind of information with each other. So this is how much quicker this stuff is, much more accessible, and how much more better informed you are. And of course, that's what we bring you on, on these podcasts and via the forums all the time. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, and I just want to be clear you know, he, yes, they, they lifted heavy, but they lifted smart. And he talks about, if you, if you guys look at his uh, training DVDs, the like stand tall and some of the other ones, you know, he talks about, he likes the, the compound lifts. He likes the bench press. He likes the deadlift. He likes the squats. He likes the, those types of, of lifts. But at the same time, he warns people don't overtrain and don't lift too heavy. You know, don't go in there like a gorilla and throw around one or two reps on these lifts because you're you're only going to injure yourself so it kind of goes along with what frank zane when i talked to frank zane on my podcast a couple years ago on this on this podcast actually um he talked about the same thing so i think that these guys some of these older guys really i'm not sure if they they knew that in the 70s or if it's something that they learned over time but they really do preach don't overtrain and don't lift stupid and that's, that's, I really think back then they understood that. If you look at the way they were training, they understood that four or five reps on a heavy lift, even six or seven or eight uh, reps, there's no need to go in there like a gorilla and do one rep to try to show off to other people. That's yeah, not, I, I, yeah, doesn't make any sense. I don't recall him ever, ever any uh, major training injuries or you know, we're not talking about any bicep tears, back tears, certainly the usual aches and pains that come with training, especially when you're in competition mode. Uh, again, Stantor has him going to visit a, a car or a physio to, to have his, uh, get himself ironed out. I've just re recalled, as, as uh, Steve was talking there, he actually did compete in a world's strongest man, one of the first ones. I think Franco uh, Colombo uh, competed, I believe, a year or two. Like, maybe even within the same competition. I'd have to double-check that, guys. So I said earlier on, they had him down as the world's strongest bodybuilder, which I don't think was the case. But he was invited, possibly as a result of how he physically looked, and certainly possibly as a result of the uh, posed, shall we say, uh, bodybuilding photographs. We're not talking about five plates aside on the incline or anything like that, which we can see now uh, with some of the bigger and stronger athletes. But certainly a big physical specimen, and he would have been invited to world's strongest man if for no other reason because of that. And so, yeah, it was, it was a strong athlete, but certainly not perhaps exaggerated as uh, the world's strongest uh, bodybuilder. But yeah, he competed in the world's strongest man uh, televised. And I know for a fact that that can be found on YouTube. I've seen the video with uh, the um, famous Zuva place on the wrist, uh, wrist roller and stuff like that. <sighs> I have a few fingers because you, you don't really see, I don't know if Steve just said, too many injuries from that time. You, you wasn't getting information, certainly, of Arnold straining a bicep or a pec tear. This stuff seemed to come later on. And I can only imagine that that came with the higher dosages that they started to employ later on. And certainly with getting real strong, real quick, as opposed to allowing the muscles to adapt over time. So perhaps the higher dosages allowed that more to happen. So you, you don't see any stories of uh, great injuries, back, back problems, uh, muscle tears, muscle strains that we, we see now, uh, especially when the guys are dieted down and are still trying to do the crazy weights and whatever else. So, yeah, perhaps a more common sense approach with the basics and less injury prone because you're using the volume rather than trying to use amazing weights, which make for a great photograph. And I believe it was around that time that you would have seen the more posed photographs with the bigger barbells and, and the dumbbells and stuff. This is pre-Chris Lund, who actually had you using 200-pound dumbbells. I think they were famous uh, wooden weights and... Uh, uh, lighter than the actually appeared weights that were used in some of the Joe Wheeler magazine articles around that time as well. So yeah, that, they had a bit more, shall we say, less, slightly less bravado to putting on weights in the gym and causing some of the injuries that we see now. And, and certainly saw, I think, late 80s when a few bicep tears and pecs tears seemed to have appeared on the scene in terms of the bodybuilders and, and the stuff that started to come down to us in terms of access to information when we could hear these things happening because the guys got real big, real quick, and the tendons hadn't quite caught up. And I don't recall Louis having any of those kind of issues. Uh, volume, 100%. The, the, very much a volume bodybuilding thing for those guys in terms of, I think, 
we touched on this before, 30 to 40 sets of muscle. And looking at Louis' training and looking at the videos and DVDs that we can find access to, yeah, I think that's very much the case. I would like to think that perhaps we would change that with Louis. Uh, we could maybe bring the volume down. We could certainly get him lean. I think for sure, as I said earlier on, we could get him up to 330, 340 pounds if he was training now as an athlete. And um, they touched on this. The idea that this guy is six foot five is going to draw the eye. That is 300 plus pounds. And he comes out on stage with that 60 inch chest. Let me, well, let me tell you something slightly off topic. The, the, one of the newspapers, just how physically big these, these guys are, and Louis specifically. The Sun newspaper here in the UK printed in a centre page spread, quite unusual. Uh, I don't think you'd ever see it now for a bodybuilder. He, when he came over for the seminar tours, they'd managed to get someone to promote the fact that he was coming. And the newspapers, and specifically the Sun, picked up on the idea that Lou Frignall, the Incredible Hulk, was coming to the UK. So whether he'd done interviews or not with the media, I don't know. But what they did do is a life-size reproduction of his flexed bicep, the famous 23 and a half inch arms, that was from the bottom of the newspaper-sized uh, center page spread to the top. So I think I actually had that cutting in a, in a, in a scrapbook where, God help me, 15, 16 years of age, whatever I was, that would be later than in 92, uh, trying to flex my muscle up against Louis to see quite how big it was. You don't realise how big a 23 and a half inches are until you've seen it in the flesh. And here there was a, a, a the, the biggest selling circulation newspaper in the UK with a life-size photograph of Louis' muscles, uh, his, his bicep flex, in the centre pages of the newspaper, almost a pull-out and keep type poster type thing which for a circulation, I believe in those days would be around three and a half, four million, uh, was something, something else. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get that now for any, Roddy Coleman, Jay Cutler, forget it. Uh, so that's how popular Louis Frigno was at those times. I think the other thing, and we'll go way, way, way back to what we said at the beginning of this episode, the Incredible Hulk was something else. It's like certain movies that we watch now, certain lines, we all waited for the episode where he would go would go crazy, when he would hulk out and, and the eyes would turn green and the shirt would rip and whatever else. The famous, I think, first episode when it was pouring over the rain, you can just find that clip right there on YouTube. And it's kind of motivational in itself. And this was required Saturday night viewing when there was only what, four channels, five channels here in the UK. And there's Lou Ferrigno, probably, you know, a month or two behind in terms of the American schedule, Saturday night viewing. So we were probably talking about 11 or 12 million people uh, in the UK, which I think that the population at that time was around 55 minutes, about a fifth of our population watching Louis having a whole care on a Saturday night. And that, that's just to give you an idea of how popular uh, Lou Ferrigno was as a bodybuilder. Something I don't think he always actually got himself. Uh, where that the half past seven on a Saturday night, I think we had Doctor Who on BBC and you had Lou Ferrigno hulking out on, on ITV. So yeah, it was a huge impact the amount of guys that would have gone with Arnold and uh, Sylvester Stallone doing his Rambo stuff or Sylvester Stallone doing his Rocky stuff and Louis being inspired by Louis hulking out and seeing that fantastic physique on a Saturday night uh, in the family, the whole family watching and the whole family enjoying this, this giant bodybuilder. Can you imagine it? I don't think we have the, the, the popularity and the in-your-home kind of access that uh, Louis probably even better than Arnold. Arnold. Arnold was in the movies, but Louis was on a Saturday night TV. He was on, you know, as Steve said earlier on, I think four years. So that's probably 40 or 50 episodes. That, that's more access to your home and to your viewing pleasure than, than Arnold got uh, with the movies because you had to go to the cinema then. You weren't downloading this stuff. You wasn't watching it on Netflix. You got Louis on your TV every Saturday night, 11 million people. You don't get 11 million people going to watch Arnold in the cinema. So his, his impression, his indelible impression on the, the, the young bodybuilder psyche is, is without comparison in that particular way. I don't think there's a bodybuilder since that could argue that they have that much access. So literally, you're sitting in a TV viewing, you've just had something to eat, you're, you're, you're starting to relax for the evening, and there's the incredible Hulk, Luf Rigno flexing his muscles. So yeah, an impression that very, very difficult to lose all, all these years later on. Yeah, back to you, Steve. 
Yeah, it's a really good, really good story. Mobster, it's one of the th reasons we have Mobster on this podcast, guys. He's uh, he's a wealth of knowledge and stories on on this stuff. He's met these people in person, uh, which is quite amazing um, because you wouldn't think they would uh, be in London, but I guess I'll, I guess London's a big hub. You know, it's one of the hubs of, of the world. So let's get it. We don't have much time though, Mobster. Let's talk about diet. And uh, Lou's been very open about his diet, and there's no reason why he would, you know, mislead lead people. Very, very open what kind of diet he used back in the 70s, which is kind of fascinating. Um, he went with a, his diet back then, low calorie and high carb. And there's been some, you know, depending on what you read and hear, I've heard that his meals, he only would have two or three meals a day at the most. Two or three solid meals um a typical meal for him very very simple chicken rice vegetables i mean I, it wasn't anything magical you know it's a typical cookie cutter diet he also loved potatoes um again not a big big secret steak and potatoes and vegetables that'd be another meal it's just it's just amazing and also fruit um there's been a lot of talk of, of fruit eggs uh, fish those are other options as well. So his diet was very, very simple. And then oats, oats as well, um, you know, more, more action on the carbs. And, and he's talked about his diet was never um, heavy on calories. Uh, they stuck to low calories back then. Even at his size, he talked about he never exceeded 3,500 calories a day. So that's a big difference compared to what you would think a, a guy of that size would be consuming. But, I mean, he's been very open uh, about this. And, and Mobster, tell us your thoughts on that and tell us what you I, think he used I, I, in the 90s and today, what guys are doing. I just said, let's touch on today first. I would, I'd like to see, they did not have what we would call diet gurus in, in the 90s. If they did, it was more of a training thing than, than a dietary thing. So I can see him working with someone like Chris Aceto now, the manipulation with diuretics and, 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 and certain supplements, the manipulation of his diet now, the, the moving around of things, the experimenting to get it all tied in. It's just, again, mind-blowing as to where he could have been was he competing now. You touched on something else, which is the 3,500 calories a day. I recall hearing something to that effect as well. And I'm actually thinking of something that I read about a couple of days ago. And it was, we, we talk about sometimes the physical response that genetically advantaged bodybuilders or athletes have uh, to training in terms of the ability to recover quicker and so on and so forth. And then we talk about steroid receptors and how, you know, you could use this amount and you look like this already and all this kind of stuff. That the thing I read about recently was, I think it was something to do with food adaptability. Now, we, he was keeping to what we would consider to be a fairly basic, if healthy diet. 3,500 calories, which when you think about how big he is and his physical activity in the gym seems kind of low. It's, it's, it's about what a hard-working uh, average guy, a Joe, would work if he was working in a mine or a physical job. But we're talking about a 275 to 320-pound bodybuilder. doesn't seem that much. So the, the food adaptability thing, which I literally only read about two days ago, is this idea that we can switch up carbs and fat and protein playing around with different foods his ability to get nutrients to absorb them and to utilize them the food adaptability part it's got to be off the scale because 3500 calories doesn't seem much the diet doesn't really sound anything that special at all and yet it produced a physical specimen that we're all well aware of so yeah i mean there's that stuff in terms of access back in the day it's going to be similar to what we spoke about in the arnold episode because you're going to be going out, you're going to be, uh, when he was in New York, hitting the delis, not talking about, um, you don't really see stuff in the 70s, or for that matter, even 92, I think we're just starting to talk about chicken breast as a staple. Tuna, for sure, was something that they spoke about. Steak and eggs was something that they spoke about, very much a 1970s thing. The chicken breast become more of a 90s thing. And the way that we manipulate our food now in, in, in the 20s, 2020s, we're far more aware in, in, this, in the 90s when we'd have been weighing our food. I don't think they would have been weighing their food quite as much in the 70s and so on. So we're more aware of calorific manipulation. Steve mentioned earlier on food partitioning. 
the actual food themselves, we were, you know, more likely to take the skin off. They would have left the skin on the chicken breast and all that kind of stuff. So what we do now, more fastidious, arguably more, uh, to, to use that term, more anal in terms of uh, food prep and what we would do. The, the ability, for, for example, they didn't have food prep in the 90s. That become more of a 2000s again, where meals would be sent to you and, and, and designed specifically for you to use. If I was Louis now, I'd work with a nutritionist. I'd have a, someone who's literally just food prepping my food. I'd have Chris Aceto for the, the supplemental and uh, nutritional uh, manipulation to get me into contest shape. The, the things that they did, and they did do certain uh, manipulation in the last couple of days, but the things that they do now with diuretics, taking certain chemicals in and out in the days running up to a competition, I think it's far more detailed now than ever it was then honestly i think to 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 use an analogy if the 70s was a kind of junior type of school and the 90s was a um a secondary or comprehensive or high school type level then we're now up at the university in college access in terms of information what we do and how we manipulate things and that's kind of what you're looking at it just makes you and this is something that's been done before it makes you want to say bodybuilders from those times and give them access to the information now. Once they take the supplements that we, they had then versus now, the training, the equipment that we have now versus then, and it makes you kind of wonder at how these guys would have looked. I just, as I said earlier, I think I can see a ripped to the bone vascular with that famous crab over most muscular, 350 pounds, Louis Ferrigno coming on stage and absolutely blowing our minds. And in terms of just literally, as I did at the seminar, being able to stand in front of him or stand next to him, whatever I weigh, whatever size I am, and I'm a lot bigger now than I was then. I, I think the mind blowing, something else I just touched on from that seminar, I took a buddy with me and Dave Prowse, AKA uh, Darth Vader, and uh, a few other characters, I think it was in the Clockwork Orange, was one of the people attending the Lufrigno seminar. And the other person attending the Lufrigno seminar at the time was Gary Taylor, who uh, latterly became a world's strongest man. So you've got these two guys who were quite high up physically. I think Dave was another six foot five specimen and was also represented the UK in uh, Olympic, heavyweight Olympic uh, lifting. Uh, Gary Taylor was a fantastic powerlifter and Olympic weightlifter and, as I said, world's strongest man. Now, they've come to see Louis. That gives you an indication of how they perceived him and the impression that he created for them. It was a kind of heroic figure for them. So, yeah, I, 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 just, I just wish, and I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I wish he had access to the information that we have now. Um, for, as a guy that's training from 1980, uh, in the 90s, in the 2000, into 2020, I've got an access to supplements I can get from all over the world, food that could be prepared for me. Um, I can pay, if I have the uh, wherewithal, guys like Chris Aceto to coach me to manipulate my diet, manipulate my stomachs, create the cycles. So I can get to work with guys like Dave Palumbo and uh, have these guys I can have my blood analyzed. I can have uh, any allergic responses, what works for me then, what works for me now. And I can have all this stuff manipulated. So literally in the last 24, 48 hours of a competition, uh, before I step on stage, I can, have, I can try at TANS, I can get video stuff, I can do video calls. I can speak to my coach no matter where he is in the world every single day in a way that the 70s and 90s bodybuilders had nowhere. Telephone calls at best. We're talking about bleepers and stuff like that and the early days of mobile phones versus what you can do now. The fact that Steve and I are right now on Zoom talking on different sides of the world to discuss this topic with you is just an indication of how far we've become advanced. And that applies to our access to information for training and everything else. Yeah, back to you, Steve. One of the things well, I'm sure I kind of disagree with is that, you know, where would he be today? I don't think he would be successful at the Mr. Olympia. And, I, and I'll tell you why. He's just too damn tall. Look at the guys who are winning Mr. Olympia now. Brandon Curry is only 5'7 on a, on a good day. Dexter Jackson's what, 5'6? Five, five, Winkler is 5'6. 
So do you I'll think you, do you think he would be successful? He'd be on stage. I you tell you how it works. There's a psychological aspect and then the physical. Now I think he would be an improved bodybuilder. Now never where he'd win because his shape, you can't change the hip structure, you can't change the shoulder structure. Not really. You'd have to do that as a kid. But in terms of the, the here's how it works, and if I'll use this analogy for you, Steve. If you've got a Phil Heath walking down a dark alleyway towards you, you're going to see the muscular shape. You might be a little bit scared. But if you've got Lou Ferrigno walking down a dark alleyway towards you and he's 350 pounds, you're probably going to shit your pants. And the argument goes with regards to the taller guys on stage. And I, I would agree with you in principle. Aesthetically, the, the, the shorter guys with the muscle on them, it's hard to argue. And of course, uh, we, we, are, we don't think we've seen any six-foot-plus bodybuilders since Arnold winning the Mr. Olympia. So there, there's a good reason right there. You got you to gotta give love to us shorter guys, Walter. I'm sorry. We got to give love <laughs> to the shorter guys. <laughs> I, can't, I just want to see him 350 pounds. I don't know. Yeah. I think you have to be closer to 400. Yeah. I mean, his height, right? I, I these guys are 5'6", 5'7", 310. You know what I'm saying? It's the human response. If, if, there's other thing where they say with the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. So here you are. Just put me and you in the crowd. We're out there watching this competition. And Phil Heath comes on stage. Let's say he's 5'7". And he's, I don't know, 250 pounds. And he's in condition. The belly sort. There's no, no shooting belly button or whatever else. And he comes out and you go, oh, my God, look how 3D Phil Heath looks. And then Louis comes out. And Louis is 350 pounds and ripped. And he's six foot five. He might not win, but he's going to make the fucking hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And you go, Jesus fucking Christ. Look at him. Now, you might not say he's a better bodybuilder, but you, he's going to make, he's going to get the adrenaline going. He's going to go, gee, <laughs> he's probably going to be the guy that makes you want to go down, go down to the gym and go, I better start working my fucking chest. <laughs> yeah, that's why but he yeah. was... That's why they made him into the Hulk, man. That's why they made him into the Hulk. He's, he's... Yeah, but maybe, maybe not a Mr. Olympia winning physique, but a, a visceral response. I think that's as you say. When you, that's what I said earlier. When, when you see him hulking out, I mean, the, you watch it now, and, and the way the shirts, shirts tear and, and all that kind of stuff still seems very artificial. But you're not thinking that at the time. You're just thinking, Jesus Christ, there's a 23 and a half inch arm. It's a 60 inch chest. It's flipping that fucking car over. It's kind of, you can't help but respond in a certain way. So my argument isn't necessarily that he'd be a Mr. Olympia winning seat. I don't think he would be. 350, 400, I don't think he would be. But as a physical specimen, he's going he's gonna to elicit a response in you that it's kind of primeval, you know. It's, you're out on the plains of the, the, the Serengeti or somewhere in Africa and this giant monster comes towards you, green or otherwise. They're going to be kind of like, I think I might want to climb back up in the tree and let it go past. And I think that's the kind of response that you get with a 350 or 400 pound Louis. Um, I don't think Louis ever see himself actually in that particular way. Probably kind of like timid or whatever, or, or you know, hi guys, how's it going? But the rest of us are standing up monkeys. We're running away because he's so damn big, he's so he's so damn muscular. So yeah, Phil Heath, the other guys, all of the winners, they all of the winners that Mr. Olympia arguably have to have something extra. And there's the thing. I think Louis kind of lacked. If this was going to be a criticism, it kind of lacked that something extra. Now, whether it's the savviness that Arnold talks about, whether it's a certain aestheticness, whether it was, you know, maybe he could have learned the pose better. Uh, watching the Stands All documentary, I'm thinking, you know, should have worked with a posing coach that we would have access to now and stuff like that. So, did he, was he able, would he be able to fill in those little gaps that would have been in his physique? Whereas I said, you know, Phil Heath, 3D, uh, Arnold with that tiny, tiny waist, although Louis did have a pretty good waist. Did he have, he, he, he would have maybe, you know, that 1% difference between the second place guy and the first place guy. As we say, we know where he placed in competition, but the first place guy, maybe it literally comes down to something as silly as the stage confidence. And maybe Louis lacked that. So even if he's free at 50, 400 pounds, is he confident? Is he coming on stage like he owns the place? And Arnold talks about that. That's how uh, to differentiate yourself between the guy that's really, really close to you physically. Sometimes you just got to act like you've already won. And I think Louis, kind of, again, 
there's there's that kind of thing again. So I want him to come on the stage as a monster who's going to tear the building down and, and kind of frighten you a little bit and, and scare the judges into giving him first place versus perhaps the way that Louis actually did come on stage and was perceived, you know, a really popular guy. But being popular, I think Arnold touches on this in, in, in Stan Saw. He says Louis was comfortable. He's doing the... He's already done the, 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 he's done the Hulk. He's got money. He's in a very nice house, in a very nice area. And Arnold says something like, he's, he's too comfortable. He needs to be hungry. He needs to be kind of, you know, needing the money for a nice house, needing the money for this stuff, needing to make his name. And he'd already done all those kind of things. So he's, I says, I need him to be hungry. I need him to be kind of thirsty. I need him to want to win. And again, maybe that's what Louis lacked, that little edge, that, tiny little bit to tip him over the one percent the things that drive us the things that make us come on stage stamp our feet on the floor look up and down the line of the other bodybuilders if to say what are these guys here for why did they even bother fucking turning up give me their damn trophy guys not pissing around it's that kind of thing. i think louis lacked that little tiny bit of hunger despite how he talks and when he talks about training and winning and whatever else you always get a sense that he's kind of talking it but he's not believing it so yeah there's that little bit there and I think it's the difference, again, I'll just use myself as an example because obviously know myself better than anybody. It would be the desire to win and the confidence that I was going to win when I was doing so, uh, when I was smashing the fuck, when I was getting records, there was, there was no doubt in my mind that this was my competition or I'm going to win this event and so on and so forth. And with my impression with Louise, you don't quite get that little bit extra, that kind of last 1%, drive and focus and determination and more than that the confidence that i'm going to come on it's not let's see what happens i want to come to a competition and there's no doubt in my mind no doubt in the judge's mind no doubt in the audience's mind in the masters olympia from the stand tall documentary all three top three guys they all get booed they all get cheered you kind of want louis <laughs> to come out on stage and everybody else goes what well, who's Who's here for second place? We've had that with a lot of the Mr. Olympians of the last couple of years, especially in the first couple of wins. There was no doubt in people's minds that this person had won. And then it was everybody else was fighting for second, third and fourth. Louis never quite had that little tiny bit that made you think, here's first place, who's in second? Never quite had that. As, as visceral as, as, as a physical specimen of that size and that shape is, never quite made you think winner. And, and, and there's the thing between him and Arnold, between the first and second place. That's kind of how it works. There you go. Listen for the day. All right, guys. So listen, we're out of time, guys, but we appreciate you guys sending in your questions. If you'd like us to do someone else um, who's been a pioneer in bodybuilding, feel free to you know, get in touch, and we will do them on the next show. Uh, but we have a really, really cool lineup ahead. So. Um, Keep in touch and uh, keep keep listening to our podcast. For Steve Smee and the Moopsta, this has been another episode of Evolutionary Hardcore. We will talk to you guys next week. Keep in touch, guys. Take care, man. Bye. Uh -huh.